Frank Bruni is a syndicated columnist with the New York Times. Last Sunday, he wrote a column in anticipation of Election Day. And in that column, he laments the discouraging times in which we live. He writes, We're living through a chapter of uncommonly durable and pronounced pessimism. When a majority of adults don't think their kids will have as many opportunities as they did. When there's a waning faith in social mobility and a widening gap between rich and poor. When our standing in the world has diminished and our sense of insecurity has intensified, and when the environment itself is turning on us. A chapter of uncommonly durable and pronounced pessimism. What made it all the more gloomy was that as he looked out over the political landscape at the candidates running for office all across the country, he found little reason to expect the next two years to be any better than the past couple of years. In his opinion, none of the candidates could bring the courage, the vision, the wisdom to lead our world to a better place. Durable and pronounced pessimism. Now, whatever your political persuasion might happen to be, I think we can all identify with Bruni's angst over the condition of our nation and our world today. It's hard to find reasons to be optimistic. Hope is a rare commodity in our world today. Hope can be defined as the desire for something and an expected outcome. In other words, think of it like a, like a formula. Desire plus expectation equals hope. It's the combination of these two things, desire and expectation, that together create hope. If you have desire but no expectation, all you have is a wish. If I say, uh, I hope we have a mild winter this year, <laughs> what I really mean is I want to have a mild winter this year because there's no particular reason I have for expecting this winter to be any milder than another. Desire without expectation is just wishful thinking. On the other hand, when a local football fan says, I hope the Patriots win this week, well, they have reason to believe that that will be the desired outcome. A couple of reasons in particular named Brady and Gronkowski. <laughs> hope demands reasons. And that's why hope is such a rare commodity in our world today. We're having a hard time finding reasons to be optimistic about the future. We can't point to anyone or anything who can fix what's wrong with the world. Who can stop ISIS? Who can contain Ebola? Who can break the gridlock in Washington, D.C.? Who can restore faith and confidence in our economy? There's not a politician or a patriot on the horizon who we believe can fix those things, durable and pronounced pessimism. And yet here we are on this Global Awareness Sunday declaring that there is, in fact, hope for the nations, and his name is Jesus. Now, where do we get off saying that? Who's to say that these words are just another campaign slogan, promises that no one can really deliver on? That's the question we'd like to go after today as we wrap up our Global Awareness Week. Is Jesus really the hope of the nations? And if so, why? And it's an important question 
not just because of what it means for our world, but because of what it means for our personal lives as well. Because if there's hope for the nations, then there's hope for my struggling marriage. There's hope for my faltering career. There's hope for my worst semester ever. There's hope for my wayward child. There's hope for my lonely heart. There's hope for a better day tomorrow. If Jesus is the hope of the nations, then Jesus is the hope of our lives as well. And so this is a really important question. So let's go to our theme text for this year's Global Awareness Week. It's a wonderful text tucked away in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 15, but let me kind of set the scene for you first. Jesus has just performed a miracle. He has healed a, a man with a withered hand. Many of the people are thrilled, but the Pharisees are upset because Jesus has performed this healing on a Sabbath day. And that's a violation of the law in their understanding. So they begin to plot that day to kill Jesus. We'll pick up the story at verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all of their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So we have a curious thing going on here. On the one hand, Jesus is openly healing people. Many people, apparently, have all kinds of diseases and afflictions. And yet he's telling all these people to be quiet, not to tell anybody. And that's a curious strategy. Does Jesus want to be known or not? If he wants to be known, why is he telling them to be quiet? If he doesn't want to be known, why is he going around performing miracles? Does Jesus want to be known or not? It's a bit of a mystery. Scholars refer to it as the messianic secret in the Gospels. So to help us understand what's going on, Matthew takes us back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier. And he prophesied at a, a time of, of pronounced pessimism in Israel. When the, the, the powerful nation of Assyria was bearing down on both northern and southern kingdoms and it didn't look well for the future. But in that dark season, Isaiah looks into the distant future and he sees a servant, someone God will send to rescue the nation. And that servant, he says, will come in the strength of God's spirit and will proclaim justice to the nations. Okay, now hear that, proclaim justice to the nations. Watch what happens next. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. So on the one hand, he's going to proclaim justice. On the other hand, he's not going to say anything. How do you proclaim something without talking about it? And if there's ever a reason to raise a ruckus about something, it would seem as though justice would be worth doing that. But that is not this servant's approach. According to Isaiah, this servant will proclaim justice quietly, out of the limelight, 
without a lot of words. 700 years later, Jesus comes along and he does exactly that. He heals people and then tells them to be quiet. And when the Pharisees come looking for a fight, he retreats to the hills. It's a very interesting approach. Compare this approach to the way most leaders function in our world today. Think about our politicians running for office these past weeks and months. What was their approach? A lot of talking. Lots of words. Making promises. Slinging slogans around. Attacking their opponents. Robo-calling our homes at dinner time. I'm sure we all got tired of the talk. Can anybody deliver on those promises? Compared to the way many Christians function in the world today. A lot of talk. We're big with words. Preaching sermons, pronouncing judgments, waging war on the culture. I wonder if people are tired of it. How differently Jesus leads. Not with words, but with actions. He wants to be known not for, uh, for, for how loud he is. He wants to be known for his love. And so while others are raising a ruckus and calling attention to themselves and shouting down their opponents, Jesus is quietly going about ministering to people, meeting needs out of the limelight one person at a time. I think there's a lesson for us there. And in the next couple of verses, Isaiah describes for us in beautiful imagery how Jesus does his work. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Isaiah wants us to imagine a reed, a stalk of wheat perhaps or flax, growing by the side of the road or maybe the edge of a field. And this reed has been damaged somehow, bent over, perhaps by a gust of wind, perhaps by a farmer's careless footstep. It's been damaged. But it's just one reed. It's just a single stalk. Chances are it's, it's never going to grow again. You might as well just snap it off and get it out of the way. Make room for something more promising to grow. That's what any reasonable farmer would do. But not this farmer. No, this servant won't give up on a bruised reed. We imagine him bending down low and ever so gently straightening up that bent-over reed. He reaches down and finds a stick and, and turns it into a splint, gently tying it up with thread. Then perhaps he places some extra soil around the base of that reed, a ring of stones to prevent it, some sprinkles of water, in the hopes that it might heal and grow again and bear fruit. That's what this servant will do. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not stuff, snuff out. Isaiah pictures for us a candle that has been nearly extinguished. Maybe a gust of wind has suddenly blown out the flame. Or, or, or it's running out of fuel or the, the wick is being clogged by debris or wax or oil. It looks as though it's out. A last gasp of smoke rises from it. Might as well just snuff it out. 
I mean, it's just going to fill the room with smoke anyway. It's just a candle. Go get another one. I mean, that's what any reasonable housekeeper would do. But not this housekeeper. He detects a faint glow on the end of that wick. And so he cups a hand around it and gently pulls away debris from the wick and with a gentle breath fans it into flame again. The the wick jumps to life, fills the room with light, and warms the hearts of people around. That's what this servant will do. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What do these images mean? They mean that with Jesus, there are no lost causes. There are no hopeless cases. There are no insignificant people. Anyone and everyone is worthy of his love and attention, no matter how far gone they may seem to be. And we see Jesus doing this all through his ministry. One day, Jesus is walking along the road surrounded by a great crowd of people. In that crowd is a woman who has been afflicted with a metal medical condition for many, many years. She's seen many, many doctors and none have been able to help her. It's, it's, it's a hopeless case until she reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and she's healed and made whole and Jesus blesses her. That same day, Jesus is on his way with a man named Jairus to Jairus' house where Jairus' daughter lies very ill. While they're still on the way, servants come from Jairus' house, and they say, it's too late. Don't bother the master anymore. The little girl's already gone. Jesus presses on anyway. The people laugh as he enters the house. Doesn't he know she's dead already? It's hopeless. Until Jesus takes that little girl by the hand, revives her, and gives her back to her parents. On another occasion, Jesus comes upon a crowd of distraught people. They're arguing over something. At the center of the circle is a young man, demon-possessed, convulsing on the ground in front of them. The, the, The young man's father explains that he's been this way since he was a boy. No one has been able to help. He brought the the young man to the disciples thinking they could do something, but they couldn't. Neither could the Pharisees who are there just shaking their heads. It's a pathetic scene until Jesus says, bring him to me. And he speaks a word and sets the man free and gives him back to his father. Then there's Simon Peter. Three times he denies his Lord, not quietly, not sheepishly or reluctantly, but loudly and with curses. And afterwards, he goes out and he weeps bitterly. He's a failure and a loser. Until the risen Jesus pulls him aside and forgives him and says again the words, follow me. You see, with Jesus, there are no lost causes. There are no hopeless cases. There are no insignificant people. A bruised reed, he will not break, and a smoldering wick, he will not cast out. And this is the Jesus we see at work in the world today. Bruised reeds, smoldering wicks, that's what these people were. That's what we all were when Jesus found us. But then he came to heal and to revive and to set free and to call us to follow him. 
It's interesting, as I turned these images and these truths over in my head this week, I found myself thinking of the lyrics of a song, a popular song by the pop artist Pink. She's describing a falling out between two lovers, a relationship that is on its last gasp. But she's not ready to give up on it. She wants to believe there's a reason that they can still make it. Just give me a reason, she sings. Just a little bit's enough. Just a second. We're not broken, just bent. And we can learn to love again. Not broken, just bent. Interestingly, I wonder if that's how Jesus sees us. Not broken, but bent. We're not a lost cause. You're not a hopeless case. Your struggling marriage, your faltering career, your worst semester ever, your wayward child, your lonely heart, your season of doubt. With Jesus, there's hope. With Jesus, there's hope. And what's true of Jesus and individuals is true of Jesus and the world. He brings hope to the nations. Look again at the last few words. Till he leads justice to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. By his quiet strength, by his tender touch, he, he leads justice to victory. So we look out at our world today. We look out at everything that's wrong with our world. At, at, at racism and, and terrorism and human trafficking and religious extremism and poverty and inequity and everything that's wrong with our world. And we look for someone to, to, to bring about justice. Someone rescue the innocent. Someone deliver the oppressed. Someone punish what's wrong and evil. Someone reward what's right. But there's no one on the horizon who can do that until Jesus comes along. And by his quiet presence and by his divine power, his healing power, he restores and heals and strengthens and lifts up and brings back to life. He accomplishes what, 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 no, what no government, what no movement, what no war has ever in the history of the human race accomplished. He brings about justice. He leads justice to victory. You know, we hear that word justice, and we always go right to punishment. We think of justice as punishing evil. But ultimately, justice is about much more than that. Justice is about putting things right. Justice is about about the world working the way it's supposed to work. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus is doing. He's putting things right, one person, one place at a time. And he's doing it through his people, the church, you and me. When the Bible calls us the body of Christ, it means it, literally. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are his eyes and ears. We, the church, are His quiet presence in this world. We bring His healing power to the nations. Jesus is now leading justice to victory, and He's doing it through His church. Now, I know that sounds incredible, but haven't we been hearing stories about that all week long? As our partners have talked to us about what's going on in our city and in the world, they've told stories about how hungry people are being fed. 
and thirsty people are receiving water, how children are being cared for and teenagers are being guided, how schools are being built, how abused women are finding shelter, how neighborhoods are being revived, how small business owners are getting loans, how churches are being planted, how the word of God is coming to unreached people all over the world and in our own backyard. Smoldering wicks are being brought to life again. Bruised reeds are being healed to grow and bear fruit. God is doing that work through our partners. Now, I hope you had a chance to hear some of their stories this past week as they visited your life community or you joined them for a lunch or some of you taking a trip yesterday to one of the many places around our city. I wish I could highlight all of our ministries this morning, but obviously can't. But I would like to introduce you to some of our newest friends in the global task. I'm going to ask Margarita and Hector Rivas if they'll come and join me here at the platform. Can we welcome them? Uh, Hector and Margarita work with the Potter's House in Guatemala City. Uh, we have gotten to know them the past couple of years, sent an exploratory trip down, and then sent a couple of high school mission trips this past summer, and their leadership has been a real blessing to us. Um, so uh, Hector and Margarita, we've been talking about uh, how Jesus comes alongside smoldering wicks and bruised reeds, uh, uh, people in situations that seem hopeless. Your work is very much about this kind of thing. Can you tell us what your work is all about? Well, the three is Jesus invited us 28 years ago to work with the people who live and work around the garbage dump in Guatemala City. We estimate that our 2,000 families is more than 11,000 people that work in that place because they work with the garbage. They think that they are trash, but the truth is that in the eyes of God, they are treasures because they are human beings with value, with dignity. They were created at the image of our dearest God. What, what, what's, what are some of the ways you kind of come alongside them to heal up, to straighten up? Uh, the, some of the language, what are some of the ways you help? Well, buenos dias. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we started working with, with them, they started thinking that they are scavengers, that they are trash, that they, are, they don't have value. But when they started realizing that God is their hope, that Jesus is their hope, they end thinking that they are treasures. Mm -hmm. Just like you and ourselves, they are treasures. So you, so breaking the cycle of poverty requires a holistic approach. So through our, all of our programs, we work on them. Starting promoting a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know, we, we have been doing many of the things. And we have a testimony, Pastor Brian. Mm -hmm. And... One of that testimony is Ricardo and Natalie. Both have been part of a game in the past. Her husband was part of, he was taking drugs and alcohol. But since they started coming to Porter's house, Jesus changed their lives and their three sons. And you know, Natalie started learning at Porter's house how to make jewelry. 
And you know, when she realized, well, I think Julie can just take care of our family. So we provide a loan to her. So she started doing that. At the beginning, Ricardo, her husband, didn't believe her. Ah, that business is not going to take care of our family. Let's, let's just go to the dump and come back to the trash and see something that we can just sell. But you know, when he realized and he started seeing Natalie, how God was just transforming her hands into this jewelry and using this jewelry to take care of their family, Ricardo came one day and told her, Honey, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't believe you in the beginning. But you know, can I join you to your business? And you know, both now are in charge, and now they are working so hard. And you know what? They are doing more than that. Now they are teaching others how to do yearly. But you know what? Now the both of them and the three of them, the children, are, are teachers to other children. So they started believing that they were scavengers, that they didn't believe that there is a hope for them. And now they believe that they are treasures. That Jesus is their hope of their lives. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. Maybe I can ask one more question. Uh, you're surrounded by great, great needs. And sometimes these things can break our hearts in some of the stories we hear. And how do you stay encouraged in your work from day to day? What keeps you going? I will add some word to your formula. Trust. Because we trust in God. In all those difficult stories and situations, we pray God together, asking God for wisdom and that He can resolve the situation because He's just He is the Savior mm -hmm. and our provider. And also, when everything is fine and is good. We need to honor God because it's his job. We trust in him in the very good times and also in the very good, bad situations. But we trust in him. In, this is our hope. And this is the hope for the treasures. We can trust in him. He never made any mistakes. He had just wonderful ideas. And he can took the bad situations and turn into beautiful things. So Jesus is your hope as well as the people's yeah. hope. Right. Thanks very much. Can we thank, thank them? Thank God bless you. <laughs> well, I did want you to meet uh, Hector and Margarita. They're uh, wonderful people, and they very much embody the kind of ministry we've been reading and hearing about this morning. So you can stop and say hi uh, on your way out today. But they are just representative of the many, many people that we partner with in our city and country and around the world. They are doing the work of Jesus, coming alongside bruised reeds and smoldering wicks and allowing Jesus to bring hope into people's lives and their households and neighborhoods and nations. So back to our opening question. Is Jesus really the hope of the nations? Yes, yes, yes. He alone can put right What's wrong with the world and with us? Jesus alone can put right what's wrong with the world and with us. So the artist Pink gets us off to a good start, but she only gets us halfway there. 
Yes, perhaps we're not broken but bent. And yes, we can learn to love again, but only with God's help. And Margarita expressed it so clearly. He is the Savior and the healer and the, and the liberator and the restorer, the reviver. He does that work. And yet, remarkably, he chooses now to do that work through us. We are his hands and feet, his eyes and ears in this world. So more than ever, our world needs hope. Let's give them a reason to believe that there's hope. Not with loud words, but with acts of love. Not by waging war, but by coming alongside a culture and a world in great need. So thanks to our partners, we are not helpless. There are things we can do to bring hope to the nations. And let me quickly tell you five things we can do, you can do. First, we can pray. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. When Jesus came upon that demon-possessed boy and the disciples said, why couldn't we cast it out? What did Jesus say? Only by prayer. Your prayers, our prayers matter. And I trust you will be praying for our partners, not just generally, but by name and by country and by ministry. I hope you're going away from this week with some names and faces and places on your heart that you'll write into your prayer journal and be praying for throughout the year. If you had a partner visit your life community, I hope your community will be praying for those partners as the year unfolds so we can pray. Secondly, we can give. We can give. It's our financial gifts that enable them to be where they are, doing what they are doing. A significant portion of everything you give to Grace Chapel goes beyond our walls to our local, regional, and uh, global partners. From time to time, we take up special offerings like we're doing this week. So if you missed that Ebola offering and you'd still like to give, you can do that next Sunday or online and be a part of that gift as well. So we can pray, we can give. Third, we can encourage don't underestimate the power of encouragement. Your interest in what our partners are doing, your enthusiasm, your desire to get to know them and build a friendship with them. Margarita shared with me, it's one of the great joys they've had it's their first time here at Grace. The, the enthusiasm with which they have been greeted, the interest that people have taken in the ministry is a great encouragement to them. So keep that up as the year unfolds. Build a real relationship. Number four, we can help. We ourselves can do things. We can get out of our comfort zone. We can drive into the city. We can come alongside a regional partner and help for a Saturday or once a month as a life community. You can go on a missions trip. We'll have trips next summer. Now is the time to begin thinking about going to some other part of the world to see what God is doing and to be part of it. So we can pray, we can give, we can encourage, we can help, and some of us can go with our whole lives. Every one of the partners that we've met here this week at some point sensed the call of God on their lives to vocational, missional work. Some of them heard that call as young men and women and have directed their whole lives towards it. Others of them heard that call midstream, at midlife or later and have made a mid-course correction and now are vocationally serving in our city or in our world. Maybe you've sensed a stirring in your heart this week. Maybe an awakening, a conviction, a calling to do something like this with your life. Don't ignore it. Talk to one of these partners before you go today. Ask them how they heard and answered that call. Talk to a pastor, but don't ignore it. This could be the beginning of God's call upon your life. 
And so Jesus is, in fact, the hope of the nations. By his quiet presence, by his divine power, he is bringing healing and life, and he's doing it through his people, the church. Right now, he's doing it one person, one place at a time. Someday, he will do it all at once in all the world. Until then, he asks us to be his hands and his feet. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for all that we have seen and heard and learned this past week, for relationships that have been built, for understanding that has increased, for hearts that have been tugged and touched, for opportunities to give and witness and share and grow. Lord, we pray that each of us today might hear what you might be saying to us, that you might compel us to pray, to give, to encourage, to help, and perhaps to go. Make us faithful, Lord, to be your people in this world, now and until Jesus comes again. In his name we pray, amen.